0: What is going on? Happy Tuesday, March 15th. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The phone number is 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. The email is pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And uh, remember, get the podcast at wbt.com. So you may be wondering, hey, didn't I vote for voter ID to be added to the state constitution a couple years ago. What's up with that? Whatever happened to that? How come we don't have voter ID? Well, I want to welcome to the program, Mitch Kokai. He's the senior political analyst at the John Locke Foundation, and he's going to walk us through why we don't have it right now. Hey, Mitch, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine, Pete, and I wish it was an easy answer, like I could say, (laughs) hey, there's this one court case, or there was a change after you voted for voter ID, but it actually is kind of a complicated story, and I'll get into it as soon as you want.
0: All right, so let's do it. So let's break it down, as you did in your piece at carolinajournal.com the other day, um, that uh, there are essentially three legal challenges, right? Three different court cases winding their way through one at the federal level, two at the state level, I think. And uh, let's start with the federal lawsuit, as you do in your piece that uh, you say one aspect of uh, this suit that has is going to reach or has reached the U.S. Supreme Court. So what is that case about and what has gone to the Supreme Court?
1: The basic part of the case is a federal challenge against the 2018 voter ID law saying that it violates the U.S. Constitution. And so that trial on the case was supposed to have taken place in January of this year, but it got bumped back. And the reason it got bumped back is because legislators who want to defend the voter ID law have not been allowed to participate in the federal case. So they appealed, and they appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take the case. So next Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case dubbed Burger versus North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP, and in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court is asked to decide whether legislative defendants can uh, be uh, it can intervene in this case uh, to uh, help represent the state when the state attorney general's office is already representing the state. The argument from the legislative defendants is that the uh, attorney general is not representing the same interests as the legislative defendants would represent and so they should be allowed to participate now this is you you could say uh, that this is a case of the republican legislature and a democratic attorney general being on different sides of the issue but the argument is a little bit more nuanced than that in that the legislators are saying look the attorney general is representing the State Board of Elections in this case. And the State Board of Elections is not necessarily uh, going to be arguing in favor of voter ID and having voter ID as quickly as possible. The State Board of Elections just wants to be sure that there are election rules in place that are clear during the time of the election process. That's a little bit different than the interest of the legislature, which passed this law and wants to see voter ID implemented as quickly as possible. So the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments. We should expect that sometime before the Supreme Court ends its term, you know, in late June or thereabouts, we'll hear a ruling. And then the federal trial on the voter ID law will take place at some point after that. Now, at this point, at the federal level, there is nothing that is impeding voter ID because uh, Judge Loretta Biggs, when she initially heard hearing uh, about this case, put in an injunction but then a year later the u.s. fourth circuit court of appeals got rid of that injunction so there's no federal impediment right now to voter id although there could be depending on the outcome of judge biggs hearing in a trial which will take place after the u.s. supreme court rules but as you alluded to there are two other cases it, at the state level to deal with this, I'm going to deal with one really quickly because it doesn't really block voter ID, but it does potentially block how quickly the General Assembly will have to move forward on voter ID in the future. And that's because there's a case, the state Supreme Court has already heard oral arguments in this case back on February 14th. And that's challenging the 2018 state constitutional amendment that you alluded to at the very top of the interview. People voted in 2018 and by a very significant margin somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty five percent to forty five percent said yes we want to enshrine voter ID in the state constitution the voter ID law that was passed in twenty eighteen came after that amendment to implement the amendment well there's a a court challenge launched by the NAACP that says there was a usurper general assembly based on gerrymandered legislative districts and they should not have even been able to put the amendment on the ballot That's something that the state Supreme Court will have to address. If the state Supreme Court decides to throw out the constitutional amendment, it wouldn't affect the law, but it would potentially limit how quickly the General Assembly would try to go about putting voter ID in place because the amendment says we have to have voter ID. If there's no amendment, then we don't have to have voter ID, and that could change the calculus at the General Assembly. The final suit and the one that right now is the one that blocks voter id is a state-level challenge to the 2018 law that challenge went before a three-judge superior court panel and last september that panel ruled two to one two democrats ruled against voter id one republican judge dissented but they threw out the voter id law the case was supposed to go to the court of appeals But the plaintiffs in the case, the ones who won, have asked the state Supreme Court to bypass the Court of Appeals and take the case themselves. The state Supreme Court has agreed, and right now all sides in the case are preparing their written arguments for the state Supreme Court. So that's basically right now the case that will decide if and when we get voter ID.
0: So depending on how these cases develop, I mean... I don't know if we get clarity until all three of them get settled. And it's if the strategy is to just run the clock out for as long as possible, um, because there is already U.S. Supreme Court precedence on voter ID and our law was crafted to be like the most liberal type of voter ID law in the land. So I'm not exactly sure how you could block it aside from that usurper argument. Yeah,
1: the usurper argument deals with the constitutional amendment, so it wouldn't throw out the law itself, but if the amendment is thrown out, then the General Assembly is under no obligation to come up with a law that complies with the amendment, and if the law ends up getting thrown out, uh, the General Assembly might have less interest or at least a less interest in doing something very quickly about it because they won't have the amendment staring them in the face. Now, you, you mentioned about running out the clock. One of the interesting pieces of this is the, uh, the activity that's taking place with the state-level voter ID trial. As I mentioned earlier, the plaintiffs, the ones challenging voter ID, they won uh, they should be the ones who don't want anything to happen. Right. The, the defendants appealed to the state court of appeals, but the plaintiffs who won said, no, let's not have the appeals court do it. Let's have the state Supreme Court look at this. And one of the arguments that people are, uh, who are, have been watching this very closely are saying is, look, the reason this is happening on a quick timetable for the plaintiffs is they want the state Supreme Court to rule while there's still a 4-3 Democratic majority on the state Supreme Court. Two seats are up on the state Supreme Court for election this year. It's entirely possible that it could flip from 4-3 Democrat to 4-3 or even 5-2 Republican, and the political calculus might change. That's why a lot of people are saying that the people who don't want voter ID want the state Supreme Court to rule against
0: it this year. Well, yes, I think that's obvious. <laughs> all right, uh, Mitch Kokai, senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. You can read all of the details about what he's just uh, covered here at CarolinaJournal.com. Mitch, good to talk with you. Thanks for your, uh, your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Pete. Have a good afternoon. All right, you too. Take care. 1110 993 WBT. Thanks again to Mitch Kokai from John Locke Foundation. CarolinaJournal.com is where you can read his piece where he goes in depth, even more so than he just did. I want to tease out a couple of points though. First, on the federal lawsuit, this is the one that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear. Oral arguments set for March 21st. So, what, six days from now, next Monday? The Supreme Court justices are going to be considering the argument that North Carolina's Republican lawmakers are making that uh, they should be allowed to intervene in the case to defend the law. Because the Attorney General, Josh Stein, I will say this, Mitch doesn't say this, I will say this has not exactly shown a willingness to defend the legislature on a bunch of stuff, just like his predecessor also refused to defend the legislature on things, his predecessor being now governor, Roy Cooper. And so you have a an attorney that is working in all other ways against you and your interests. This, to me, is one of those things where it's so obvious that the lawmakers should be able to retain their own counsel because— Of course they should. They can't trust their lawyer. Their lawyer has already gone around their backs on, uh, you'll recall, the changes to election law in 2020. Did not include them in the hammering out of the deal with the Board of Elections and the uh, plaintiffs. You know, this array of left-wing groups that, lo and behold, all agreed to do the things that everybody on the left, agreed to do beforehand. They all wanted these changes put in place. The Republicans went into session. They uh, debated the bill. They debated changes to the law. They made some changes to the laws with bipartisan support. The governor signed those things into law, and they still got sued. And then Stein still cut a deal and just so happened to give Karen Brinson Bell the hack that is in charge of the State Board of Elections, the executive director, um, they gave uh, they gave her what she wanted. And she had been asking for these expansions of absentee ballot rules and stuff, and she wanted more. She got smacked down on a couple of them in the court. doesn't matter. Point is, they can't trust their lawyer, Josh Stein. I don't understand how somebody can behave like this as a lawyer and not get disbarred. I really don't. Um, there's also the argument Mitch, uh, uh, touched on briefly there as well, that the board of elections is part of this case and the board of elections is not really interested in voter ID. I mean, yes, the board of elections is against voter ID. The members are against it. They are majority Democrat. Remember they were appointed by democratic governor, Roy Cooper and Roy Cooper sued in or- the legislature in order to get the system uh, put back to where it was, the status quo, because the legislature, you'll recall, changed the makeup of the Board of Elections to make it more bipartisan, to make sure that there was an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, appointments from the, the legislature and the governor and such. And Roy Cooper sued, essentially demanding that the status quo be maintained and he get to appoint the majority of uh People on to the boards of elections at every level, county level and state level. That's why all of our boards of election in this state are controlled by Democrats, because that's what he sued to maintain. But I'm supposed to believe there was an apolitical reason for that. Right. I'm supposed to believe that Roy Cooper is not motivated by politics whatsoever, saw no political benefit to keeping the boards of election under a partisan domination, partisan controlling uh, mechanism. Do you want me to believe that? No, I don't believe that. They wanted to maintain control of the, of the boards. And so the Board of Elections may be comprised of people that, uh, that don't want voter ID implemented personally. Their personal views. But they will tell you, we would never let our personal views influence these types of decisions we are simply in this case uh, just because we need to you know, make sure that we are administering the elections uh, as smoothly as possible. And so that's why uh, that's our only interest. Okay, so let's take them at face value. That's their only interest. Why would Josh Stein, as the representative for the Board of Elections in that case, why would he make a good lawyer in defense of the law? Because the Board of Elections' interest If we give them the benefit of the doubt, we believe them, right? Their interest is only that the elections run smoothly. And so what exactly is their interest now? What exactly would Josh Stein be arguing in defense of the voter ID? In fact, you should argue against voter ID because that's an extra layer of administration, bureaucracy, training, voter education. So it's easier to conduct an election under the status quo. So their interests are not aligned with the legislature on this. And so to me, it's pretty obvious that, yes, of course, the lawmakers should be able to hire their own lawyer to defend the law that was passed by we, the people, the voters, 55, 45 percent. We we passed it. We wanted voter I.D. And then they wrote a law that is the most liberal voter I.D. law in the land. And it's still not good enough. It's still not good enough for the Sue Till Blue crowd. All right, I'll get into the other two cases here um, and then uh, uh, kind of tie this into the larger issue facing the Democratic Party's uh, priority now, which is save the governors. Roy Cooper's in charge of that. The apolitical Roy Cooper. Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show, 704 570 1110 1-800-WBT-1110. Going over the three different obstacles that voter ID, because people ask me about this um, pretty regularly, I think. And uh, they'll ask me, oh, d- didn't we pass voter ID? And yes, we did. We voters passed voter ID. And then the legislature wrote a voter ID law. And it's one of the most permissive voter ID laws, if not the most, in the entire nation. So it's not even a really strict voter ID law. Still, we were sued by left-wing activists trying to delay implementation of the voter ID law. And they've been successful. Obviously, we're going on four years now since we voted for it. So I already went over the, the first case with, and with Mitch Kokai from Carolina Journal, who's done a lot of good work on, uh, on documenting this and kind of keeping it all Tidy, as tidy as you can. There's one federal case that's going to the U.S. Supreme Court, oral arguments next week. Uh, Then there are two state level cases. So the first one, the court has already heard arguments in the North Carolina NAACP versus Tim Moore. It's a case challenging two state constitutional amendments that voters approved. It's not just the voter ID, one would enshrine the voter ID, but also, the existing cap on income tax rates. Do you remember that one? That one passed, too. They put, remember, they put six referenda up to voters. Four of them passed. These guys, the NAACP, they only sued over two of them. They didn't sue over, what was it, Marcy's Law, right? They didn't sue over that one. No, no, no. They sued over the, the cap, lowering the cap, because the, the cap was already there. They just wanted to lower it, set it at a lower level. And so that's what the NAACP is suing over and the voter ID. And their argument is that the lawmakers are a usurper legislature, which is because they had the, the maps that the courts threw out. They said these are gerrymandered maps. And so the NAACP says, well, if they were gerrymandered maps, they were illegal, and if they were illegal then the people who were elected from them should never have been able to make a law in the first place. They never should have been able to even ask voters for the referendum. Which, if they're successful on these two challenges for these two referenda, wouldn't they also then unwind all of the other referenda, the others that passed? And by the way, wouldn't it also unwind all of the session law and general statutes, literally everything that the Republicans have done in 10 years, that's what their argument would lead us to. How could it not? How could it not? If you're going to say that it is a usurper legislature and their rules were illegitimate on the two that went to voters and voters approved, then why wouldn't every single law that they have passed in the last decade also fall. Yes, that's kind of a sticky issue. Um, there was also, Mitch Koch, I also had another write-up a couple of days back about um, the oral arguments in this case. And um, Justice Anita Earls. Anita Earls, one of the lawyers for the social, uh, the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, who has been like front and center, and she has been as well personally in much of the litigation, if like probably, I don't know, just going to ballpark it 90% of the legislation or uh, uh, litigation rather that has been filed against the General Assembly over the last decade. That organization has been suing until bluing from the beginning. She's now on the state Supreme Court because Eric Holder, Obama's wingman, his organization funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars into the state in order to get her onto the bench. But in, there's, uh, in this oral argument, there was an exchange that occurred, and Mitch Kokai documents it here. He says, addressing the tax cap amendment, Justice Anita Earls conducted the following exchange with Kimberly Hunter, an attorney representing the NAACP. That group wants both challenged amendments stricken from North Carolina's governing document, but only those two were to believe. And here's what Earls asked, quote, didn't the trial court find that the income tax cap resulted in spending cuts that disproportionately hurt public schools or significantly reduced funding for communities of color? Were those findings of fact challenged on appeal? And the lawyer says, no, your honor, they were not challenged on appeal. And then Earl says, but don't those findings of fact relate to the question of whether or not a General Assembly that was elected from districts that were found to be intentionally racially discriminatory against black voters should be able to pass constitutional amendments that also discriminate against black voters? Here's the point of highlighting this exchange. You got to go through a little bit of background, which Kokai provides here, that we have for, for like a century, right? We have had an income tax in North Carolina. It was at its highest in the early 2000s. It was at eight and a quarter percent. Okay. Eight and a quarter percent. Prior to this referendum going to the voters and reducing it, the state constitution had the income tax rate at 10% cap. State lawmakers never reached that cap. So Earls is making this, well, she's like softballing the question to the lawyer Leading the witness, if you will. She's leading the lawyer in this question. Well, isn't it true? Didn't the court find that the income tax cap resulted in spending cuts? And the lawyer says essentially, yeah, and, and nobody challenged it. Well, it's not true. How do I know it's not true? Because they never hit the cap. Right? That makes does how does that make sense? How does it make sense to say that you still have one in a one and three-quarters percent room under the cap? That you never go up to, and then argue that you were limited by the cap. You were not limited by the cap. They did not cut spending because of the income tax cap in the 2000s. And by the way, those were Democrats that did that. Democrats were the ones that raised the rates to eight and a quarter percent. Then Republicans win on maps that Democrats drew, by the way, in 2010. They take over. They start enacting sweeping tax reform, which I always point this out as well, that Democratic lawmakers used to tell me in interviews that, yes, we need to overhaul our tax system because it was based on a on an agrarian and heavy manufacturing type of system that no longer applies. We're now more service oriented and we've seen a lot of growth and there needs to be an overhaul of the tax system, but they could never get any kind of traction in changing the system. Republicans come in. They start doing tax reform in 2013. They got rid of the multi-tier income tax system and they do a single flat tax, a flat income tax. And uh, for that year, it was just under 5.5%. And what we voted on in 2018, a couple of years later, was taking the cap from 10% down to 7 So once again, the level of spending at that flat rate Still below the 7% cap so they never went above the cap either so they made the move to lower the income tax rate before they made the move to lower the cap so once again another piece of evidence that proves Earls and the lawyer for the NAACP they're either gaslighting, they're uninformed or they think everybody else isn't paying attention to these arguments I don't know what else uh, I, I just, I don't know what else it could be Talk 993 WBT, the Pete Callender show. Going over the litigation that has held up implementation of our voter ID law in North Carolina now for almost four years. Uh, there's the federal case, there are two state-level cases. Um talking about the one that the NAACP, the state chapter, filed against the legislature. And that, that one has already gone through oral arguments. And in that exchange that I was talking about earlier, Earls, one of the Supreme Court justices, Anita Earls, formerly of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, one of the main sewers in, well, that doesn't sound right, Uh, one of the main litigation teams, let's say, organizations that has been suing the state legislature since Republicans took over, She's now on the Supreme Court because of dark money groups on the left. And uh, she, in this uh, discussion, the oral arguments with the lawyer for the NAACP, she implies that putting a cap of 7% on our income tax rate in North Carolina discriminates against black voters. That this is somehow discriminatory against black voters. Mind you, the... Income tax cap already exists in North Carolina, not to mention it had already been changed once before. Yeah, like decades prior, I want to say it was in like the 50s or something, and they already changed it. They moved it from, uh, I think it was eight, and they went to 10. Oh, maybe it was, I think it may have been the, uh, uh, the Great Depression, World War II era, I think is when they did it. And they pushed it up to 10%. So bringing it back down to seven is not really a radical idea. I guess it is if you're a radical. It is, you know, crazy to think that, what, I couldn't just spend us into oblivion? But this argument that it's somehow discriminatory against black voters, like this is just dumbassery. It's hard to conceive how that could possibly even be true. Mitch Kokai, writing at Carolina Journal, says all the amendment did was ensure that no future General Assembly could raise income tax rates beyond 7%. The cap makes no exceptions for taxpayers of different races. It targets no racial demographic for any special favors or harmful discrimination. There's nothing in there. In fact, the state Republican legislators, they've been changing the, uh, the, uh, oh, I always forget what this term is. Why am I forgetting the term? The standard deduction. They're, they're, they've changed the standard deduction. They keep raising that thing. So you got almost half of the state not paying any income taxes. I don't understand this argument. It's just it's just silliness. Um, there was another piece also at Carolina Journal. Let me see if I can find it here. It was by our pal Andy Jackson. Yeah, here it is. Um He says that uh, if the plaintiffs claim to to, to, do the Supreme Court, the North Carolina Supreme Court, if it overturns the voter ID amendment, would not only strip away the General Assembly's constitutional authority to propose amendments when it sees fit. But it was it would also take away the constitutional authority vested in the people of North Carolina to amend their constitution and it would nullify certified votes by the people. There was an article about this, uh, about the oral arguments about this case. At WRAL, three different reporters, the top reporters, the top political reporters. Travis Fain, Laura Leslie and Brian Anderson, who just recently moved over from the Associated Press. So they got their top people on this. And here's how they describe later on in the story what the case is about. It's one of three before. State and federal judges, right now. Um, the case is also part of a larger partisan fight that includes the state Supreme Court's recent decision to throw out the state legislature's latest redistricting efforts as illegal partisan gerrymanders. This case, this is the, these three top political reporters at WRAL. The case is one of three, and it's part of a larger partisan fight. That's it, it's just a larger partisan fight. No, I'm not really sure who all's involved in all of the fighting and the partisanship. It's just a larger fight, you see. Nowhere do they mention the Sioux Till Blue strategy. These are their top political reporters that are conveying to the public, right, what the truth is. Capital T, capital T the truth, that we're supposed to believe everything that you you've written in the story. Yet you omit the very key piece of information that this is an ongoing strategy for over a decade to keep filing lawsuits against the General Assembly in order to inflict political damage so as to resume control, to return to power that the Democrat machine enjoyed for almost a century and a half with virtually zero interruption. That's what they leave out of their story. I wonder why. Is it possible they don't know these things? How could that be possible? Laura Leslie's been on the beat there longer than I have. And Travis Fain, almost as long as I've been covering North Carolina politics. He was up in Virginia for a few years. All right, now Brian Anderson is new. He's like right out of college, a couple years or so. Worked at the AP, though, but he's been... He's been on the beat now for a couple of years, two, three years. I think he started like right before the pandemic. He was the AP guy that would always kind of uh, uh, flatter Cooper. You know, thanks so much for taking the time to screen the phone calls and let him get to ask you a question. He, he would do sort of that kind of buttering them up beforehand. But anyway, these are the three people that they've charged with writing this story about this case. That's part of a larger partisan fight and then provide zero support or information about the larger political fight and how it might just be an effort to put the Democrat machine back into place. They're almost there. They got four of the 10 statewide seats. Governor Cooper was a product of that machine, as was Stein.